Our Father, this morning we come to you as the author of truth, as the king of the universe, as the one who is never too busy to look upon the needs of every single one of your children on this planet this day. And Father, the word of God is being proclaimed in many places uh, throughout this day, and we trust that your blessing is upon it. We pray that you will bring all those that you have called into the fold uh, this day. And we ask, Lord, that you will bless us here as, our, as we study. We know that it's the Spirit of God who is our teacher, the one who enlightens our minds and hearts, enables us to understand what you've said. And Father, I pray that your word will fall on fertile ground in each of us and that we will allow it to mold us, to shape us into the image of your Son. Father, I pray that throughout this complex this morning in every Sunday school class, that your Spirit will be at work. Bless each teacher, each student. Be with the service concurrently. And we ask that you, you will be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 10th chapter of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10, I'd like to begin reading with verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon, in the valley of Aelon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there was no day like it before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. We were looking at this pa uh, passage last week at the end of class. And of course, it is one of the uh, more dramatic passages of Scripture. It is also, of course, one of the passages that has been most challenged by many scholars, particularly those who are of the uh, persuasion that uh, God is not in the miracle business. Or if he is, they're very small miracles. They're not miracles of this order. What Joshua has done here is requested that God give them more light so they can complete the conquest. They want to do what God has called them to do. God has called them to wipe out the enemy armies. And so they're in the process of doing this. And we looked last week. They're, they've chased the enemy army down the Beth Horon Ridge. They hung a left at the bottom of the ridge and went through one of the valleys of the Shephelah there, where, which is known as the Elon Valley. And, and they're headed on down to Azika, which is today a, a rather beautiful tell which uh, overlooks the site where uh, David picked up his five smooth stone, stones with which he slew uh, Goliath. And in, in the process, it was, you know, he was afraid the day would get away from him and, and that the enemy would not be destroyed before it got dark. And so he prayed certainly one of the most audacious prayers in Scripture. And as I mentioned last time, if this were not a divinely inspired prayer, I mean, <laughs> talk about a presumptuousness. I, you know, I don't know what else we could call it. Uh, by the way, God, would you stop the sun and the moon, you know? Whatever he understood about the process of the sun and moon, he knew it was cosmic. Uh, he knew it was no small thing to halt the sun and the moon, uh, you know, in their apparent movement around the earth. And of course, to us, we know what that meant was that he was going to have to retard the, the rotation of the earth. And I mentioned to you last time, some commentators have said that there are, there are astronomers that have proclaimed that there is a day missing through the uh, history of the world and looking back. And Gordon Waggy was up last week after class confirming that he had heard that and, and seen that too. 
how, how they do that is, is still beyond me. And how, how do you figure out that there's a day missing over the past 10,000 years or whatever, you know, by looking at the stars or whatever? I don't know uh, how that happens. But uh, to me, the strongest testimony to the reality of this is that there have been missionaries and anthropologists that have come from many parts of the world who say that in traditions, in legends from people all over the world, there's a legend of a day, uh, of a day missing or a day that was extra long a doubly long night or a doubly long day. And it's just too numerous to be accidental. It's sort of like the flood story. You know, the story of the flood can be found in one, one source I, I read listed 300 incidents in various uh, primitive peoples around the world where they have a flood tradition. Well, you know, maybe a flood is a common thing, but for them to think that, that there was a, there's a flood tradition that covers the uh, you know, world and destroys the culture and that there was a boat and a few people survived all of this, seems too close to what we know to be the biblical narrative to be happenstance. There are those, of course, who interpret this from all the way from the literal thing, God actually caused the earth to stop, to the legendary side. Many people say this is one of the things that proves the Bible is legend and that you can't really trust it, at least in, in sections like this, because obviously this couldn't happen. And they say it couldn't happen because if you were to slow the earth down, why, it would cause all kind of cataclysmic things. Earthquakes of mammoth scale, the, the uh, atmosphere would rush around the earth. I mean, you know, when you're standing on the equator, the earth, the, if, you, if you're standing on the equator, you're out on the very rim of a wheel that's spinning. And, and you're turning at 1,070 miles per hour. The earth, that, that's how fast you're traveling through the air. But of course, it doesn't feel that way because the air is traveling at the same speed. And it's just as if somehow God, if he had the power to slow the earth down, he wouldn't have power to slow the air down to match it. You know, it's, it, to me, it's, it's, it's uh, very faulty thinking. And we're concerned about the oceans continuing to slow. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Coriolis force, which, you know, affects both the air movements and, and the water movements. <laughs> yeah, that could create a, quite a thing. Wow, yeah, you'd, you'd end up with the ocean flowing clear over the continent, wouldn't you? Well, somehow, I don't know how it is, but uh, God manages to take care of those kinds of things. There are those who explain that what happened here was that God refracted the light rays of the sun. He really did go down, but he refracted the rays back. And, you know, I'm not saying he couldn't do that. But whatever, uh, the, the main point here is this is a miracle. This is a miracle uh, brought about by God for the purpose of allowing Joshua to carry out what God had ordered him to do. God provides our needs to what he calls us to do. He may not stop the world for us. Sometimes you talk to missionaries from around the world, many times that involves miracles. Uh, miracles that uh, may seem small uh, scale compared to this cosmic miracle, but were very important in bringing men and women to a knowledge of Christ. What this passage does tell us in verse 14 is that there was no day like that before or after it. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. He's not saying there that God never after this listened to the voice of man. Obviously he did and he still does. What, what he's saying of course is this was a unique event in history. It was the only time that God created this, this cosmic miracle, a miracle on this order. Uh, I guess we could argue about a lot of things. We could call the incarnation the greatest miracle of all and, and certainly for our salvation it is. We could call the ascension and resurrection uh, the greatest miracle of all. But in terms of something that impacts the cosmos as we know it physically, this certainly has been the greatest miracle uh, performed. The question is, why did he do it? Well, why did God do this? Well, the answer is at the end of verse 14. 
for the Lord fought for Israel. You know, however he chooses to fight for Israel. This is how he chose to fight for Israel at this point. It's a clear demonstration of his omnipotence. And I think one of the things you find in study of the Old Testament is that we're dealing with an omnipotent God, the God of creation, the Lord of the universe. Nothing is too hard for him, and there's nothing he cannot do. And it's important for us to understand it. It provides, as this article we passed around highlights, it provides it. You really cannot understand much of the New Testament if you don't have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. Oh, you can get the stories maybe of the Gospels, as Yancey will tell you in that article, but you don't really understand uh, many parts of it uh, unless you have some kind of a knowledge of what's going on in the Old Testament. One of the things we discover from this is how powerful prayer can be. How powerful is prayer? We probably have all gone through the same kind of an evolution. I remember when I was younger, much younger, I, I thought prayer was, uh, you know, it was a nice little, uh, you know, exercise, but it, w- it was just something you did because God said you should, but I didn't expect anything particularly dramatic to come out of it. But I've come a long ways since that time. It does seem sometimes we pray and pray and pray, and, and we've been praying for Alma, for example, and she's still in ICU. But, but that doesn't mean our prayers are falling on, on, on deaf ears of God. It, it doesn't mean that God is not working. It means he's got a timetable, and we, pray, through our prayers, come into conformity with his timetable. And by linking the body of Christ together in united prayer, we see things happen that otherwise would not happen. But as Luther was saying this morning, we tend to be very impatient. We want to know if we pray today why it doesn't happen tomorrow. And he, he said, we, we wonder if God even heard. Yes, God heard. God hears the simple prayer to the complex prayer. God hears the prayer of the humble heart. And he does his will. And of course, that's what we want. Above all, we want his will. We may, we may decide his will ought to be, get Alma out of ICU right now, put her up on her feet, and give her strength to go out and do the things she's able to do. Well, we trust that that's what God's going to do, but maybe his timetable's a little differently, a little different from ours. Well, after destroying the Amorite army, the Israelites, we're told in this passage, went back to the camp at Gilgal. From Ezekiel to Gilgal, if you look at your map there, from Ezekiel to Gilgal, now, of course, you could take measurements the way the crow flies, but the Israelite army didn't march the way the crow flies. Israel is a very lumpy land. (laughs) It's very mountainous, lots of hills, rocks, and so forth. So you follow the routes. It's full of of routes. As I mentioned before, you have the main route along the coast, which is known as the Via Maris. You have the ridge route, which comes down through the center of the country and and links cities like Shechem and Gibeon and Jerusalem and Hebron together. And then you have the King's Highway, which travels down the the crest of the um, Golan Heights and, you know, that, that area over there. So they had to follow the roads, more or less. And the passage back from, from Ezekiel to Gilgal is a distance of about 43 miles by road. Uh, remembering again, they walked every one of those 43 miles. There were no trucks to hop on and no half tracks to ride and even, not even horses that they possessed anyway. At least scripture is totally silent upon Israel possessing horses. When they arrived back at Gilgal, can you imagine the celebration? Now, did, did Joshua maintain correspondence with Gilgal? Did he send ru- runners back as the battle progressed? I, I don't know. We're not told. So it's very possible they already knew in Gilgal why this, I mean, I'm sure it freaked them out, you know, when the sun just plain didn't go down. They thought, whoa, what's happening here? Because they weren't in on the actual prayer that Joshua prayed as he was going down the Beth Horon Ridge and, 
and he asked for the sun to stand still. And as you look backwards at fairly close to high noon, which is what it sounds like here, you look back from the Beth Horon Rim, it appears the sun is sitting on top of Gibeon. And then apparently it was one of those days when you had the moon up in the middle of the day and it was looking the other way to the west. It was sitting there over the city of Elon. So when he when, when they got back to the camp, can you imagine the buzz, 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 buzz as the soldiers recounted all that God had done and, and they finally discovered, wow, you mean that extra long day was because Joshua, our leader, prayed? Whoa, can this guy pray or what? And I think it was an amazing thing because what it did, it, it should have reconfirmed for Israel, what will God not do for Israel? What will he not do? Parts the Red Sea, whatever we argue that was, parts the Jordan River, knocks the walls of Jericho down by whatever means he chose to, and now he slows the rotation of the earth down. What, what is he not going to do for Israel? See, what, what that gives us a real sense. What is it that God won't do for us? We may not slow down the earth for us. You know? He may not make us run faster than we normally run, except maybe in some special circumstance where we have to, to catch somebody or escape something. But sort of like Elijah, when he took off from Mount Carmel and ran back uh, across the plain of Esdraelon, God gave him the strength to outrun a chariot. That must have been pretty funny. Ahab's going in his chariot and... <laughs> there goes Elijah. God will do whatever he must do for his people. And there's nothing he won't do for you or for me that's within his plan. And that's within his desire to, to make you or me into the person he wants us to be and to use us for his glory and to touch other people's lives. You know, as strange as it might seem, I've even heard missionaries report of the fact that they, they ran up and, uh, against a, a group of people they had never seen before, they couldn't speak their language, and yet God gave them power to testify of him to these people in their language, and he never even heard the language before in his life. You know, God does these things. He is a God of miracles. Don't expect it all the time. You know, as one of the prayer requests today is going to be for Rachel Thompson. She's apprehensive about her French exam, which is coming up. You know, I don't know if God's going to put extra French in her mind and heart, but God does expect us to do what we should do. Well, let's read on in the 10th chapter here, beginning verse 16. Now, these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay yourselves there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter the cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a great slaughter until they were destroyed, and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities, that all the people returned to the camp uh, to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Chronologically, it would seem that this particular passage probably ought to plug in behind verse 11 because uh, the passage from verses 14, 12 to 14 where we read Joshua's prayer concerning the longest day describes the miracle that God had performed in order to enable Israel to annihilate the Amorites. And verse 15 kind of gave closure to that event, saying they went back to the camp at Gilgal. But this passage here gives further detail about their pursuit of the Gibeonites. In other words, they have not yet gone back to Gilgal. They didn't go back to Gilgal as, as soon as they uh, ran across, uh, had this, this long day, and then come back again right away to kill off these five kings. 
So, you know, in terms of the chronological flow, we should put uh, this passage following verse 11. This passage and the next one gives us the details of the pursuit and of the destruction of the Amorites. A as they chase the fleeing Amorites, now, I, you know, I I've never been in an army that was chasing somebody else pell-mell down a mountainside or down through a valley or wherever else. But I could imagine, you know, um, if, if you're frightened for your life, you can run a whole lot longer and a whole lot faster than you ever could run before. And uh, for the Israelites, they also had the adrenaline pumping, you know, because as I mentioned to you before, guys are easier to kill when their backs towards you <laughs> than when their fronts towards you. And so Israel was slaying the men as they ran down the mountain. But five Amorite kings were found cowering in a cave at Makeda. Now, Israel is full of caves. There are caves all over the place there. So exactly where this cave of is, it was, or is, is of course debatable, debated today. In fact, where the town of Makeda was is not exactly certain. It was near Azekah, obviously. But Joshua didn't want his men losing time worrying about these five kings. So he says, seal up the cave, put a couple of guards there, and the rest of you keep pursuing the Amorites because I don't want them to get into their cities and shut the door so that they could be secure. However, we discover that in spite of this effort, at verse 20, it does say that a few of the enemy did reach their cities, the safety of the fortified cities. This isn't going to make any difference in the long run. Again, you see, we have a, we, we have a plan, and this is how the plan ought to be executed. But God doesn't always follow our plan. And God said, I want you to annihilate all these people, and, and Joshua could say, but God, some of them got back inside the fortified cities. So, they're going to capture every one of the cities and butcher the whole population. What's the diff, you know? It just means these guys live a few more days, and that's about all it means. Live a few more days in what? In utter terror of Israel. So they're not exactly what you would call quality days <laughs> for their lives. The vast bulk of the Amorite army was dead on the battlefield. Um, we're, we're used to seeing pictures today of World War II and the Holocaust and, and you know, what's going on in Kosovo and Bosnia and dead people lying around. But, you know, we're looking at a 25-mile tra trail of corpses. People are dying right and left as Israel struck them as they went down. Of course, the great hailstorm that God sent also miraculously, which uh, butchered, we're told in that passage, more of the Amorites than did Israel. It, it would have been a tragic thing. And, and you wonder, what happens to all those corpses? Well, historically, what happens to corpses is, first of all, the people around pillage them, usually. Usually, people will come and strip anything usable off. If you read, for example, the story of uh, Napoleon at Borodino in, Ru in Russia, just before the, he captured Russia, there was, a, there was a tremendous battle fought at Borodino in which something over 100,000 people were slain. And when Napoleon came back later, I mean, everybody on the battlefield was naked because people had come along, the Russian peasants, they had stripped everything off all the corpses. And then, of course, the animals would take care of a lot of the rest of it. So, um, some cases, of course, they take time to bury, but how do you bury thousands and thousands and thousands of corpses? It's kind of grotesque, isn't it? But it's part of, of the event which transpired here as we read about it. There, there was no one left to fight now. They had driven the men from the battlefield, uh, killed most of them. The rest had escaped into a city. And so they went back to the cave at Makeda and camped there. I, I don't think the five men inside that cave were particularly thrilled to know that Joshua was back. 
because they knew what was standard practice in those days, and usually the kings, the leaders of enemy armies were executed. The last phrase of verse 21 is, is kind of interesting, why it's even here. It says, no one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. That can be ter uh, taken in at least two different ways, and maybe you can think of others. Uh, it can mean that none of the Canaanites dared to utter a word against Israel, let alone to attack them, because they were petrified. They were petrified. Israel had chased this huge Amorite army uh, over a, a space of 25 miles and butchered them along the way, and God had slaughtered great numbers. Uh, how could they dare talk against Israel? Or, or it could mean, could mean that uh, because some of the Amorites escaped, that people could murmur against Joshua for letting them escape, but that nobody did. Well, whatever the case was, God gave Israel a mighty victory that day. Well, let's read on. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And they brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on, the ne on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward Joshua struck them, put them to death, and hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. And it came about at sunset that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put, a lar put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Now when you read a passage like that, you can say, I understand why people, a lot of people don't like to read the Old Testament. It's a really bloody story. And it, it seems to be a story with, with uh, no mercy, no compassion as you read down through here. But you know, what it really does is underscore the reality of spiritual warfare. I mean, this is really, at its root, it's a spiritual warfare. It's spiritual war. And you and I today will find that the enemy is not a gentleman as you deal with him in spiritual warfare. Um, he will take advantage of every possible opportunity, and he is totally vicious and, and vile and evil. And so as you read this, it's really very gentle compared to the spiritual warfare that's behind it all actually. These, the, the five kings who had attacked Gibeon with their great army and, and wanted to force Gibeon to either return to the fold of the Amorites or to destroy them so they could not help Joshua, had been driven headlong down the Beth Horon Ridge and, and through the Shephelah. And now here they were in this cave, cowering, you know, what's going to happen to us? Joshua pulled him out, and, and he used them to illustrate the victory that God was giving Israel. How great is the victory? It's total victory. It's complete victory. That's the kind of victory he was giving. And so he had his generals come, and, and he had the Amorite kings lie on the ground, and he had his generals come and put their feet on the necks of these men. That was a very common practice in the ancient world of, of declaring uh, victory. It's, it's what David basically did to Goliath before he amputated Goliath's head. And, you know, it, it's a statement of triumph. 
And of course, in this case, it's a statement of God's triumph, of the fact that God had given them victory, and it symbolized the defeat and total subjugation of these nations. In fact, they were to be so subjugated that none of the uh, Canaanites let, were left. That, that is real subjugation. <laughs> That's total annihilation. That was what they were supposed to be doing. Well, Joshua repeated the Lord's promise there as we read in uh, verse 25. Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. Thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So be strong and courageous. I think being strong and courageous meant also something that we might not think of. And that is having to do the duty of butchering these people. I mean, we're not looking at Nazis here. We're not looking at uh, Gestapo here or uh, SS officers who sat around and got a delight out of me machine gunning innocent people. Th these people, I think, took no delight in having to slay these people. No delight, particularly when they had to enter the city and slay men, women, and children. And as we talked about this before, I, I can't even imagine it, how difficult it had to be. Uh, we can always argue, well, you know, it was a more brutal age in those days. Oh, I don't know. Our, our day and age in which we live here in America is pretty brutal. Joshua's actions, as described in these verses, were in accordance with a command that God had given through Moses back in Deuteronomy. Let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verses 22 and 23, And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang on the, all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. It's a pagan thing, and the Israelites were not to do this pagan thing. And so guys were dead. They had been hanging there long enough for everybody to get the point, and so they were tossed in the cave, and the, and the entrance was sealed up. Well, after executing the five kings, uh, Joshua attacked the nearby town of Makeda. Now, we, ha we know nothing about this town other than its name, and the implication, of course, that it was a Canaanite town. We don't know how big it was. We don't know how def well defended it was. We don't even know for sure where it was located. Most believe that it was located about two miles north of Azekah. But if you travel through the Shephelah of Israel, you'll find there are numerous tells there. And sometimes they're not really sure which tell is, was which city. Often they have to go with traditional Arabic names that somehow give some introduction back to what might have been the original name, archaeological finds, and so forth. But there are still several tells that have been unidentified or where there are multiple identifications for the same city. You know, at least people believe this is it and that's it. So exactly where, but we know it was nearby to Ezekiah. We, we assume the city was not large because we're told this passage seems to imply in the very day in which he slew these five kings and hung them on a tree, he also captured the city of Makeda and wiped out its population. So it probably was a small town. We don't even know if it was fortified. Most of the towns were fortified. Most of the villages were not. People in the villages would flee to the town if, if there was an attack imminent. But again, you know, the city fell quickly and it was destroyed. The defeat of the Amorite Confederation, of this, of this um, a coalition army that had gathered outside of Gibeon, basically sealed the doom for southern Canaan because the power was expended. There was nothing left that could defend. There was no army left to defend the rest of the region. 
the largest military force had been destroyed, and the fear of the Israelites was in the hearts of every Canaanite throughout the land. I don't even think we could really put ourselves in the place of those Canaanites and to think that, you know, this attack is inexorable. Nothing slows these guys down. They take city after city, and they don't make treaties with you, you know, other than the foolish treaty they made with Gibeon, but that was carried out through a ruse, not because the people came out and says, okay, uh, we won't resist you if you make a treaty with us. Joshua, any cities that said that, Joshua had to say, sorry, our God has said you all die. I don't think Joshua would get any delight out of that either, but it's what had to be done. 29th verse, Joshua 10. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel, and he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor in it. And thus he did to its king, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all the camp uh, with him passed on from Libna to Lachish, and they camped by it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, according to, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came to help Lachish, and Joshua defeated him and his people until he had left him no survivor. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Lachish to Eglon, camped by it and fought against it. They captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it, according to all that he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel went with him, went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it, and they captured it and struck it, and its king and all its cities and all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor, according to all that he had done to Eglon. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to Debir and fought against it. He captured it and its king and its cities. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed every person who was in it. He left no survivor, just as he had done to Hebron. So he did to Debir and its king, as he had also done to Libna and its king. So like the Grim Reaper, huh? Just Israel just kept rolling along from city to city. Actually, this part of Canaan is a very tragic part of Canaan. Because you've lived, if you read down through history, you discover that many of these cities, particularly the ones down in the Shephelon on the coastal plain, were subject to attack uh, under many circumstances. They were attacked by the Egyptians. They would later be attacked by uh, the armies that came out of Mesopotamia, the armies of the Assyrians, and the armies of the Babylonians in, in a later time period. They, they just were kind of out-exposed uh, in the open there. And... Uh, easy targets. Not all of them, but especially the ones down uh, in the lower elevation. It's very likely that um, after capturing the city of Makeda, that was at this point that Joshua took the men back to Gilgal for some R&R. Those cities are all buttoned up over there, and they're there, and we'll pick them off when we're ready. Let's take the army back. Let's report. Let's, uh, let's uh, take the loot back we've got so far, and uh, let's you know, get, get people back in good shape here. And then, after that, come back, march orderly back to Makeda, set up camp again, and then launch the attack against these cities. The first target was Libna, the site of which is somewhat uncertain. But it's believed to be, as the, I have it on that map there, it was located about uh, four miles south of Azekah. That's the more common belief, anyway. 
Libna was apparently a fairly strongly fortified city, a city that uh, was on par with Jericho. But like Jericho, it fell, was, was destroyed and captured, not like Jericho in that God knocked the walls down. There's no statement of that in here. But it seems, it, it just seems from the flow of these passages of Scripture that Israel was not locked into any really long-term sieges of these cities. They put their army around there and, and then attacked and, and captured the city in fairly short order. Seems to be implied here. And of course, the reason is clearly given. The Lord fought for Israel. Lachish was particularly a strong and well-known uh, city. It's located about eight miles southwest of Libna. It was one of the larger cities in southern Canaan. Uh, its name appears in several of the Egyptian writings of the ancient period, particularly in the Tel El Amarna letters. Lachish shows up several times, which those letters come from this time period. In, in laying a siege to Lachish, Joshua had several advantages, and of course these were advantages he had in, in attacking all of these cities. First of all, he had this army of tens of thousands of battle-hardened veterans now. Israel, its army was no longer a ragtag bunch of sheep pushers. Uh, they, they now had learned siege warfare, they had learned uh, routing of an enemy, they had learned face-to-face -face confrontation, they had uh, been of course very successful, which emboldened them emboldened them. They had probably picked up a great deal of equipment and armor from fallen enemies. The Canaanites were noted for being very well armed. And as a result, uh, he had a pretty good army now. And secondly, of course, most of the army of Lachish had already been destroyed, fleeing down away from the Gibeon siege. And so there weren't too many soldiers probably left in Lachish at the time. As I mentioned to you before, historically speaking, you need eight to ten attackers for every defender in order to take a well-fortified city. In, a, in an assault, and probably Lachish didn't even have that, uh, you know, one for every eight to ten Israelites, probably did not, inside the walls of the city. And so, you know, if you can attack a portion of the wall where there is no defenders, are no defenders, you can get through into the city very quickly and uh, take the city. Uh, and then thirdly, and more importantly than any of the others, the scripture keeps telling us the Lord was fighting for Israel. The Lord was fighting for Israel, and that's why they had the victory. And, and that's why these stories are so important and timely for us, because the God who fought for Israel fights for us. We may not be in the same situation, but many of you, I'm certain, feel sometimes as if you're besieged. You feel like you're under attack. You feel like things are just not going the way you'd like them to go. And, and many times this is the result of enemy attack. The Lord fights for us, and, and we need to be sure we pray for one another, because there's st great strength in united prayer. The only thing the people of Lachish had going for them was the fact that they had probably a fairly strong wall around the city. Uh, they had a spirit of desperation, and people do strange things when they're really desperate, and supposedly getting help from Gezer. Now, Gezer was not a part of the original confederation. Gezer was not a part of that five-king confederation. But if you look at the map, Gezer was located uh, not far from where the uh, Bethhorn Ridge debouches into the Elon Valley. And so when the Amorites were fleeing past here and Israel was chasing after them, they, they came probably within five miles, five miles of the walls of Gezer. And so they thought, whoa, you know, we better help stop this plague of, of Israelites here if we can. And so the king of Gezer Haram put together an army and decided to go help Lachish down in the south to defend it against this siege. But he got there too late. The city fell. We're, we're told in verse 32 that the city fell on the second day. Well, not even Sennacherib or Babylon or, or Nebuchadnezzar could take Lachish in two days. 
later in time. So obviously it was because God gave the victory to Israel. Even with the numerical advantage that Joshua had to take a city in two days or a day and a half, a strongly fortified city is, is very unusual, speaking of ancient military history. And so when the king of Gezer shows up, he's got nobody to help. You know, he's out there in the open plain coming against Joshua. And of course, he's probably not only outnumbered, but of course, the Lord is fighting for Joshua. And so the passage tells us that his army was annihilated, wiped out. Well, I think I'll stop there. But we'll pick up and finish off the chapter next week.